Good morning. It's good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Dan. And I'm one of the pastors here and um, have not been in this place at this pulpit preaching since the end of September. And uh, somebody asked me, um, is it kind of like riding a bike? I said, no, it's, it's not. Um, it is in some ways because of God's faithfulness. That God's word is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it will accomplish the work that he sets out to accomplish in each one of us as we submit ourselves to it. But God is faithful, always, is he not? You know, last night I didn't sleep well. I had a nightmare. And it was kind of like the nightmares that I used to have um, probably for 30 years after I graduated from college, the nightmare that I really didn't graduate because I flunked a class. And I just never could make it to get that diploma. Well, last night, um, I don't remember all the details, but it was today. It was me stand, getting ready to preach, yet we were all meeting at Timberline Church in Fort Collins. I don't know what that was all about. Like a big church, lots of people, um, like just crazy stuff going on. And I arrived like 10 minutes late, forgot my notes at home, couldn't remember the passage that I was preaching. And I had, I remember just like sitting at a table in a hallway with everything spread out all over, just like at the end of myself. And then at random, my grandson Callahan was like running by himself down there. Nobody was watching him. I have no idea what that was all about. Today, in this passage, um, it's a heavy passage. And it is, um, it's also a gospel-saturated passage. And the Lord is going to speak to every one of us today. If you are here today and you're a fan of Jesus, but you have yet to fully trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, there's a message for you today. And it's a stark message. For most of you here today that are followers of Jesus, who, whose hearts have been changed, regenerate, there is a call today to wake up if we're, and follow him and to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because that's where ultimate peace and joy and comfort comes from. It's not doing our own thing, but it's following him with every fiber that we have. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you that, um, that you are faithful and that all of your promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. And today as we look at your promise spoken through the prophet Isaiah, God, I pray that we would be um, struck anew that we have been released from our captivity to our sin and to Satan and the principalities of this world. And that we've been, we've been set free and that we've been brought into a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords the one who calls us sons and daughters, the one who delights in us because of our union with Christ. 
So Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified this morning. Uh, Spirit of God, I pray that you would um, give me um, unction and clarity to, um, to proclaim your word as, as it's written, to bring no offense to it. And I pray, um, Lord Jesus, that, um, that you would reign in this place as our, as our king this morning. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Dan Reeves became the youngest head coach in the NFL when he was hired by the Denver Broncos in 1981. Shortly after that, he acquired quarterback John Elway in a trade. And after acquiring Elway, Reeves guided the Broncos to six postseason appearances, five division titles, three AFC championships, and three Super Bowl appearances during those 12 years. Because in 1992, he was fired. I was a follower of the Broncos. I had season tickets in those days, and I followed them closely every week. Following was not always easy. I would sacrifice three hours a week watching their away games on TV, and I would sacrifice a whole day going to their home games. And I would further sacrifice by freezing and getting beer spilt on me and the beer freezing on me. There was great sacrifice in being a follower of the Broncos, Broncos or the Broncos, as we call them. <laughs> but when Reeves was fired, I handed over my tickets. I stepped down as a follower on a weekly basis, and I became a casual or a distant fan. I w- I've watched a handful of games since 1992. I missed some of their best years because I was so frustrated with the, with the owners for firing Dan Reeves. I moved from being a sold-out follower to a casual fan. Over the years, we've had people come to this church, Windsor Community Church, and they would walk in, come up to me or one of the other pastors after the first service and say, we have been looking for a church like this for the last few years and we have not been able to find one. Whether it was the preaching or the singing or the community or the coffee, whatever it was, they've been looking for a church like this. And my response to them was, glad you're here. I hope you find a home where you can be known and where you can grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. But I promise you this. At some point, we will disappoint you. At some point, whatever it is that you walked in and felt that felt perfect to you, um, you're going to see the imperfections of this place and that you'll go potentially from a follower to a fan of WCC, which isn't all bad. This pattern is true in many of our relationships with people and organizations. When we like someone's messaging or like um, a product that they offer or how they look, we accept them and we start following them. Think of, of the people you follow on YouTube or Instagram or the podcasts that you follow. We give our time, our money, our attention. But then over time as we inspect them, as we, as we, as we look closer at their message, at their personality and we see that we don't agree with everything they say, we stop following them, and we become fans. And finally, when we've had enough, 
we reject that person and that organization. This pattern is true for many of us in our relationship with Jesus and his gospel message. Some of us thought that when Jesus saved us from our sin that we were entitled to a trouble-free life. No sickness, no relational issues, no loneliness, no financial difficulties, and having the right politicians in office. And as life unfolds and we inspect these realities in our life and see that they don't line up with the message that we thought we accepted, we somehow think that God has abandoned or duped us and we stop following and become distant and casual fans. And some even reject Jesus and his message. Fans of Jesus want a salvation that dies when we die. Their followers, to contrast that, have a salvation that holds us during and through hardships of life and holds us through the grave. The more a follower inspects Jesus and his message of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone, the more resolute we become to follow him and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't know the hearts of you all here. I don't know the hearts of the few people that might be listening online. But some of you may be unregenerate fans of Jesus. You like the idea of Christianity when it fits your political and conservative ideology, but you reject taking him at his word and wholesale following him, even when it's hard. Today in this passage, we're going to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And I pray that the Spirit of God would use today's passage to shine the light of his glory into the darkness of unregenerate hearts and to re reawaken those who belong to him, but who have become fans, casual and distant fans, rather than followers who love the Lord their God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray today as we feast on his word that we would agree with the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8 that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. Today we'll follow a high level pattern of accept, inspect, and reject. And the preaching collective on Friday, I had a pattern that actually had eight points. And the guys encouraged me to reduce it to three. Accept, verses 14 through 22a. Inspect, verses 22b through 27. And then reject. Accept. Starting in Luke 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit of, in the, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out, went out through the, all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Having been tempted in overcoming the powers of darkness in the wilderness, Jesus is now marches into the territory that was occupied by the power of darkness, the region of Galilee and the entire world. And he came to bring the kingdom of God. His initial work of bringing the kingdom of God is preaching and healing by the power of the Spirit. His ministry starts in the region of Galilee, 
which is, which is north of Samaria, and Samaria is north of Judea. And in this region of Galilee, a report went out through the entire region of Jesus' spirit-empowered preaching and miraculous healing. Literally, he was becoming famous. His fame went before him because of his teaching and his healing. Continue in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. Luke's first mention of Jesus' public ministry is in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was known as a poor and insignificant town of about 400 people. In fact, in John chapter 146, a man by the name of Nathaniel summarizes the view of most people about Nazareth when he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't know what town we would equate that to in Colorado. I don't want to offend anybody. So I'll keep my mouth shut because some of you live there. No. Even though we know that Jesus spent time preaching and healing in other towns after the wilderness, there's reports in John. There's actually a a report later on in chapter four that after he came out of the wilderness, he didn't come straight to Nazareth. He actually went to Capernaum and he went to Jerusalem. But Luke determines to start his account of Jesus' ministry in the lowly town of Nazareth. And he, he did this, we don't know why he did this, but possibly in order to emphasize Jesus' ministry to the poor and marginalized who were disdained by those of influence. So you know that with all the hubbub circulating about this homegrown teacher and healer, the people of Nazareth, this, people of four, this town of 400, had to be proud of Jesus. They're hearing of his fame, and now they're hearing that he's coming to their town. If you were to Google maps of famous people, where famous people were born in the United States, you'd see, you'd see pins all over the map of the United States. Like, we take pride in people that made it big that were born in our town, right? You see it all over the place. Um, there's a town in southwest Colorado called Manassa. Does anybody know what Manassa is famous for? The Manassa Brawler. Jack Dempsey, home of Jack Dempsey, the Manasseh Brawler. Um, Kersey, just see, anybody know what Kersey's famous for? Bruce Ford, world champion rodeo rider. There's a sign when you drive in the town. Um, if you go to Tupelo, Mississippi, it's home of Elvis Presley. We drive to Kansas City a lot because one of our sons and his wife and our youngest grandson lives there. And as you drive through Abilene or by Abilene, it says home of Dwight D. Eisenhower. And I've always been curious about this next one. As you go through, uh, as you drive by Oakley, Kansas, it says home of the world's largest prairie dog. (laughs) Like, I mean, is that all you have to like... Wasn't there a pharmacist or a doctor or something that was born there? It's home of the largest prairie dog. So I envision Nazareth with a big sign that says, Nazareth, home of Jesus Barjona, uh, Bar-Joseph, son of Joseph. He was famous. And even though he was accepted as their hometown hero, the more people inspected him and his message, they started to doubt his claims and they ultimately rejected him. And this passage today in Luke chapter four is a microcosm of the, of the rest of Luke. And, it, and it, it's a shadow of the cross of Christ. 
we see at the end of verse 16, it says this, and as was his custom, Jesus, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. You see, it was customary for devout Jews to show up on the Sabbath, the seventh day, the Sabbath rest day, and to attend synagogue. It was also um, customary for synagogues when there was a guest rabbi or teacher, same thing, teacher rabbi, when there was a guest that was in town to allow that guest to do the reading and oftentimes the teaching. So with Jesus growing uh, in his reputation and his visiting Nazareth, he was invited to read and speak at their local synagogue. And there was an order of service in the synagogue. I thought it would be helpful to, to, to actually talk about what goes on in a synagogue service. Well, one of the first things they do is that they recite the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. And I want to read it to us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Next, they would offer up prayers. Then they would read from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then they would read from one of the prophets. And after the reading from one of the prophets, there would be a teaching from one of the scriptures that was just read from either the Torah or the prophets. And the scriptures were read standing up. And then when the teacher would teach, he would sit down to teach. As Jesus stood, the attendant handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he opened it to Isaiah chapter 61. It seems as though Jesus picked the passage that he wanted to read. This powerful passage in Isaiah was well known to the Jewish people as it pointed to the spirit-anointed Messiah who would save God's people from their enemies, give them back their land, and restore their kingdom. Isaiah proclaimed a coming king who would proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, give sight to the blind, free the oppressed, and he would bring about the day of the Lord's favor in eternal jubilee. And I think it's really important for us to understand what jubilee is. Because there was a day of jubilee on a weekly basis, there was a seven-year jubilee, there was a 50-year jubilee, and there was an eternal jubilee that was prophesied by the prophets that all of Israel waited for. Jubilee is simply a time of rest and restoration. God's people longed for a Messiah or a king who would bring a once and for all eternal rest or shalom. And let me explain these jubilee rhythms, these Jewish rhythms of jubilee that is most clearly seen, if you want to study it, in Leviticus 25. They practice a weekly jubilee where they're it was six days of work and a seventh day of Sabbath rest. They had a seventh year, not seven day, but seven year jubilee. 
It's when they would uh, plant for the first six years, plant and harvest. And on the seventh year, they would let the land go fallow. They would not plant it, nor would they harvest it. They would just um, live in that seventh year um, off of all the labor of the previous six years. And then seven times that pattern of seven years, 49 plus one, would be a 50-year jubilee, a 50-year uh, rest that is described in Leviticus 25. And this 50-year jubilee, it was a year where everything that was humanly possible would be returned to the way it ought to be. All debts were canceled. Great time to go to college back then. Slaves were freed. All the people were returned their property, property that might have been taken away from them. They, this 50-year this jubilee would happen on average once in a lifetime. And it would give them a glimpse into what God would finally do when he sent the anointed one, the Messiah. This was the passage, Isaiah 61 is the passage in the Old Testament that said when the Messiah comes, he would bring the eternal year or time of Jubilee. So Jesus starts to recite Isaiah 61 in verse 18 here in Luke chapter four. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The spirit anointed king would pro proclaim good news to the materially poor. But material poverty was not the only meaning. What he's pointing to here is to those who know they are spiritually bankrupt and are beggars in need of God's grace. In Luke chapter six, Jesus said to his disciples, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are, who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. The good news of the anointed one are for those who know that they need saving, that they know that they are spiritually bankrupt, know that they need grace and that they're beggars. Next, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The word for liberty is used 15 times in Leviticus 25 for describing the year of Jubilee. When people are released again from their debts, slaves are freed from their masters and people are given back their property. Isaiah's writing to the Jewish people who are held captive in Babylon. When he writes um, Isaiah 61, he's writing to Jewish people who are actually in captivity in Babylon. And as he proclaimed coming liberty to them, they would have remembered their, their ancestors who were, who were um, liberated from being exiles in um, back in Exodus or in, uh, in Egypt where their ancestors were in slavery and brought into the promised land. But this passage pointed to a greater liberation, not just simply a, a physical liberation, a release of captives who are exiled as a result of their sin. This freedom that, that Isaiah is pointing to is a forgiveness found in the forgiveness, is a forgiveness found in the anointed one. Thus the anointed one is coming to proclaim forgiveness to those captive and imprisoned by their sin. And the reference to forgiveness of sins helps us see that the poor in the first line cannot be limited strictly to the material poor. And he came to recover sight to the blind. And we're gonna see next week in this powerful passage where Jesus starts to heal those with physical 
ailments that, he, that Jesus has the power to heal, including healing the blind. But the anointed one comes in the power of the Spirit not to merely heal the physically blind, but the spiritually blind. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. <clears throat> so the anointed one would come to shine the light of, of his glory into the darkness of human hearts. He came to set at liberty those who were oppressed. He came simply not, he, he didn't come simply to proclaim liberty, but to release captives. He came to set free those who were enslaved and oppressed by their own sin and who were enslaved to Satan. The anointed one would be the sin bearer, the one who came to forgive humanity of their sins, to literally cancel the record of our death. And I love this. Paul says, says this in Colossians 1. We're not just merely forgiven, that he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Just Take that in a sense, if, if you are in debt here today, if you have a large mortgage uh, and somebody were to come tomorrow and just write a check for your $300,000, $500,000, dollars mortgage, um, cancel that debt where you owe him nothing, that Jesus came, the anointed one would come to cancel the record of debt that stood against us, that condemned us to an eternity separated from our Creator. And then finally in verse 19, the anointed one came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to proclaim the dawn of a new age. He came to proclaim that all things would be made new. And all things mean spiritual and physical. He would restore humanity. He would restore the created order and reverse the curse and all of its effects. The year of the Lord's favor is a time of salvation for God's people. And if you would turn to Isaiah 61, you don't need to do it, but I would encourage you to do it. And he's quoting what we know to be Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. He actually inserts a little bit from Isaiah 58, but we're not going to talk about that this morning. But if you were to um, look at Isaiah 61, verse 2, <coughs> you would see that it reads like this. <clears throat> to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it continues. But Jesus doesn't continue it. It continues like this, to proclaim the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. And this is not because he does not believe such vengeance is coming, because in Luke chapter 21, he talks about the vengeance of God that is coming when Jesus returns a second time to judge the living and the dead. But I believe that he, he omits it because the anointed one comes to open the door of the ark of salvation and the door to the ark of salvation will remain open until Jesus returns. So what matters now for them then and us today is that the door to the ark of salvation is open. And if you're here today and you're standing outside the ark. The door is open. And Jesus, the anointed one, is inviting you. And we should not proclaim or profess or wish um, vengeance, God's vengeance on anybody. 
He will get his vengeance. No matter how vile or separated somebody is from God or how far or um, impossible you think it is for them to be saved, do not proclaim vengeance on them. Ask God to have mercy on them and change their hearts. First comes the opportunity for salvation. The day of vengeance is later. Israel and all people of every nation are given the opportunity to repent before judgment comes. Has anybody heard of John 3.16 before? How many of you can recite John 3.17? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 20. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus didn't go back into the seats of the congregation. He sat down in the place of the teacher. In verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. End of sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And today doesn't refer to a particular day of the week. He is pointing to a timeless now. It is fulfilled in your hearing. I am he, and I have come to bring an eternal jubilee to all who receive and believe the good news of salvation. I'm the anointed king you have waited for. I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. First observation, they spoke. It was a charismatic group. Like they're, they're amening. They're elbowing each other. Did you just hear what he said? That the time is now, it's been fulfilled. I would love it if we would grow into a church that when there's a truth that you resonate with, that you just, you can't contain yourself. There's just amen and hallelujah. We need more of that in this church. But then all of a sudden, in mid-sentence, as they were speaking well of him and they were marveling at his gracious words, They thought, could it be? The year of the Lord's favor has arrived. And cutting through their immediate joy and pleasure, they started to inspect. After accepting him, they started to inspect his claims and inspect his heritage. And they must have thought, wait. This man, 
Jesus Barjona, the carpenter's son, is the fulfillment, is the anointed one? Is, is that what he's saying? Verse 22b, and they said it. Is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus responded to them. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And what he did in Capernaum is he healed people. They wanted to see an act to prove that he was who he said he was. And one of the most striking aspects of this section of Scripture is that Jesus senses that they totally missed the point of his teaching. Jesus explains what's going on in their heart. They were happy to hear the word, but became outraged as Jesus began to apply the word. All they wanted to see was his power. Jesus was a traveling, itinerant teacher who is rumored to be a healer as well, and they were waiting and wanted a powerful political Messiah, one who would free them from Roman oppression. They wanted a king who would free them from the tyranny of Rome and give them their land back. Isaiah was pointing to a spiritual liberator, but they were only interested in being liberated from their hardship and difficulties that they were experiencing in this world. Don't misunderstand Jesus and don't misunderstand me that, because God cares about our temporal condition and our hardships and we should care about the temporal condition and hardships that other people are experiencing. As a church, we should bend towards those who are sick and hurting and grieving and impoverished and oppressed and marginalized. God cares about our temporal suffering, but he cares more about eternal suffering. Isaiah 61 points us to the servant who will bring about glorious restoration for his people. He would bring us about a spiritual liberation from our bondage to sin and Satan. And upon his second coming, he will bring about a liberation, yes, from our physical and our political enemies, but not until the second coming. So we live in spiritual liberation, free from the power and penalty of sin, free from the oppression of the power of Satan. But we still live under the, the, um, the oppression of our physical and political enemies until he returns again. Left to ourselves, brothers and sisters, I think if we're honest, we want a salvation that dies when we die. Jesus continues in verse 24. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Even though these are the days of salvation, know that there will be a day when God's word will leave those who reject it. And it's not the first time that God's word left those who rejected it. And to make his point, in verses 25 through 27, Jesus tells the story of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Because of the sin and unbelief of their own people, these prophets went to the Gentiles. These Gentiles, these outsiders who would receive and believe the message of the God of Israel. So he gives these illustrations as a warning to all who reject his message and to affirm his concern for those who receive and believe his message, including those outside the covenant community. Verse 25, but in truth, 
whatever you hear, but in truth or truly, truly, it's God saying, this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me me. So help me God. Listen up. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a non-Israelite, Gentile, outsider widow. It's in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 24. Elijah and his message were rejected by Ahab, the king of the Jews, and it was welcomed by a Gentile widow. And in verse 27, he says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. We see that in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19. And then we get to the rejection. These people who accepted him as their hometown famous teacher healer, after inspecting him, they rejected him. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The very people who accepted him rejected him. The problem was not Jesus and the problem was not his message. The problem was that the people wanted a salvation that would die when they died. They wanted a God who was a genie in a bottle, who would give them whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it. They wanted a political savior who would exercise vengeance on their enemies. But Jesus was not just a proclaiming and healing prophet, but a savior, the suffering servant who came to die for the sins of the world, for you and me. And one who would take his life, and one where no one would take his life from him but only he could lay it down at his own accord. Only Jesus had the authority to lay it down. We don't have any details as to how Jesus slipped away, but there's a haunting truth for those who rejected him in Nazareth. You can search through all of Luke. You can search through all of Matthew, Mark, and John, and you'll see that Jesus never returned to Nazareth, his hometown. There's no gray ground for Jesus. If you're not with him, you're against him. You're either a friend or you're an enemy. And friends, I would just encourage us to ask ourselves, are we fans of Jesus because he checks all of our political and ideological boxes? Or are we followers who are compelled by the truths of Isaiah 61? to follow him, and to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that you emptied yourself and you took on flesh 
And you, as a human, were tempted in every way as we were, yet you never sinned. And we thank you that you came not just to proclaim salvation, but to bring it. You came not just to proclaim a liberty that would set the captives free, but you came to give us a way to experience freedom from the power and penalty of our sin, to experience freedom from the lies of the enemy, to experience rest and an eternal jubilee in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And I thank you that, that we can cling to the promise that you will never leave nor forsake those whom you've called to yourself. And even though we have seasons where we all uh, slip from sold out followers to fans, God, I pray that, the, that those in this service today that have hearts of flesh, that we've been changed from the inside out, but we have, we have fallen asleep and become fans. God, I pray that you would awaken us with these truths today. That we'd be reminded that we've been purchased by a good and loving God. And would you give us the resolve, compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to once again love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, for those that are here that are just our fans of your ideology, of your agenda, yet they haven't surrendered and become followers. I pray that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself for your glory and for their joy. God's people said, amen.